Today at Reader's Corner, Daniel Golden, author of The Ransomware Hunting Team, a band of misfits, improbable crusade to save the world from cybercrime. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. Scattered across the world, an elite team of code crackers is working tirelessly to thwart the defining cyber scourge of our time, ransomware. Again and again, an unlikely band of misfits, mostly self-taught and often struggling to make ends meet, have outwitted the underworld of hackers who lock computer networks and demand huge payments in return for the keys. In their new book, The Ransomware Hunting Team, a band of misfits improbable crusade to save the world from cybercrime, Daniel Golden and Renee Dudley trace the adventures of these unassuming heroes and how they have used their skills to save millions of ransomware victims from paying billions of dollars to criminals. Working tirelessly from bedrooms and back offices and refusing payment, they've rescued those who the FBI has been either unwilling or unable to help. Daniel Golden is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and a senior editor at ProPublica. His previous books include The Price of Admission and Spy Schools, How the CIA, FBI, and Foreign Intelligence Secretly Exploit America's Universities. Dan Golden, welcome to Reader's Corner. Thanks for having me, Bob. I'm delighted. Well, Dan, as I was saying uh, before we started uh, taping, this has just been a, a great read for me. I was I was so much impressed with Learning about the technology, yes, but I have to say the humanity in this book is incredible. The coverage you give of this ransomware team and uh, an assorted group of other players uh, is just really great research. Let's start with just some real basics. Do we have any idea? I think I said billions in the introduction. Do we have any idea how much money is handed over to ransomware thieves a year? Well, it's certainly in the billions, as you say, and it's hard to know because so many of these transactions never become public. Yeah. But one of the things that happened while we were working on this book over the last few years is that the amounts demanded by the ransomware hackers have just increased exponentially. So five, six years ago, people would say, oh, ransomware, yeah, it attacks a lot of people, but it's just a few hundred bucks. It's more an annoyance than everything else. And it was mostly targeted individuals. But in the last few years, it's begun targeting major corporations, government agencies, hospitals, universities. I noticed a community college in Idaho got, got hit. You know, and, and often the ransom demands are in the millions or tens of millions of dollars. And if you can't crack the code, you know, with which they've disabled your, your files, uh, often you have to pay the ransom. And that's where the hunting team comes in. Sometimes uh, they can crack the code and give you the key so that you don't have to pay. So how many different strains are out there that, that they know of? And I, I guess that number is not exact. It's probably, uh, you know, an approximate number. And then what percentage of these ransomware cases actually get resolved by somebody like the ransomware team? I think I read a quote in your book where the CEO of a company called Coveware, which we'll talk about later, said, uh, the clients whose ransomware you can actually crack is less than 10%, one or two variants a month among the 20 or 30 variants. So is that the case across the board, or is that just that guy's company's success or experience? I think that 
that's the case across the board, or at least it's a minority of strains that can be cracked. And in answer to your first question, I would say that there's hundreds and hundreds of strains, maybe as many as a thousand different ransomware strains and many different gangs using them. And they can only be cracked if they make a technical mistake. If ransomware is done well, it's basically unbreakable. And so uh, what the hunting team does is they look for flaws in the code. For example, cryptography is often based on a code that's built on random numbers, but it's not that easy to generate a, a purely random code. And sometimes there's certain patterns that can be detected. And so that's one way they crack it. They have, they have a bunch of methods, but it all depends on a mistake. And one of the central paradoxes here is that the hunting team, whenever they crack a ransomware code, it helps the victims of that strain, but in a longer term scale, in a way they're helping the ransomware attackers because what happens is they crack the code, they just try as discreetly as they can, they let the victims know so that the victims don't pay, but sooner or later the gang says, hey, wait a minute, the money's not coming in anymore, we must have a problem with our code. And then they look and they fix it so that it's unbreakable. So the hunting team has saved all these people and and stopped all these payments but at the same time, it's contributed to making ransomware uh, ever more high quality and ever more dangerous in the long run. So let's talk about the ransomware hunting team personally. Michael Gillespie, he's the person you call the superhero of central Illinois. Uh, give us a profile of of Michael. I, I fell in love with this guy, and uh, I can't wait to have you tell our listeners uh, just who he is and how he's pulled this off. Oh, he's a, he's a fascinating guy. You know, nobody had ever written about him before. Renee uh, profiled him with me editing the story for ProPublica in, in 2018. And she had just heard that, oh, this guy knows everything about ransomware. You have to talk to him. And she went out there. And here's this very unassuming guy in this not very expensive home with, surrounded by cats and rabbits <laughs> and working for basically very low wages as the tech repairman at a place called Nerds on Call. And yet he's moonlighting in his spare time as the greatest cracker of ransomware codes in the world. And he had been through so many struggles in his life. His, his family was poor. He never went to college. Uh, he was so poor when, when we, Renee got to know him and we, we talked to him that his car was impounded. He almost lost his house. He had to, you know, could only pay one utility. Do I shut off the water this month or do I, do they shut off the electricity? And he'd overcome cancer too. And he was only in his late twenties. Now he's maybe 30. And yet he overcame all this to fight all these ransomware gangs. And at the same time, he doesn't take a penny for his services, not a cent so that. He helps all these many, many victims of ransomware. I mean, people are sending him direct messages, you know, dozens and dozens of people a day. Many more are contacting him through his website. If he can crack the ransomware, he does, and often he's successful, and yet he won't take a cent for it. And so uh, he was an amazingly unassuming, ordinary guy struggling through his life, and yet with this superhero aspect, as you say, you know, the superhero of normal <laughs> Illinois when he was a kid. His parents would take him to this town in Illinois where they had this big statue of Superman. And, you know, he was five or six years old, and this made a big impression on him. And uh, now he's in his own terrain, the Internet, you know, where he kind of lives. He's a superhero of the Internet, like an Avenger, you might say. You also spent uh, a bit of time talking about Morgan, his his girlfriend. 
and then his wife, right? That's right. And, yeah. you know, she's a very fascinating figure, very, very bright, um, struggling herself, partly because her husband has a regular day job, and then the rest of his time is consumed with fighting ransomware. It doesn't leave a lot of time for her. And, you know, so she sometimes has felt in their marriage uh, left alone, you know. And so one of the reasons they had financial problems, we discovered as we got to know them better, is that to relax and sort of for consolation, she turned to smoking marijuana. And that became a, a major bill that they couldn't afford to pay. But in other respects, she's very supportive of them. And it's funny, when you interview them, if you have them together on a Zoom or in person, he's a man of very few words, and most of them are technical. If you ask him about ransomware, <laughs> he'll give you a very technical explanation. Morgan is is, is chatty and very open, and uh, she's kind of his translator to the outside world in a sense, which he needs because he's one of these sort of shy, withdrawn tech types. You know, I uh, read the part of your book that described all of the troubles and the problems that uh, Michael Gillespie had in his youth, uh, getting bullied. And when I finished reading those few paragraphs, I paused for a moment and said, you know, that's the description of a shooter that we're hearing about in this country way too often. And isn't it interesting that somewhere in Michael's background, he turns into this law enforcer instead of this law breaker. And only if we had more of his kind, I suppose. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think part of it is he does come from a loving family. You know, his, his parents care for him. His 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 wife, you know, loves him. Uh, and so I think he has that kind of emotional support. And then, you know, there's some law enforcement in his background. I think we mentioned, you know, one of his, uh, uh, you know, grandfather or uncle or something was was in was was a police uh, officer. And so he went that way, you know, and he's he's got a strong moral code. And so rather than being any kind of criminal, what he does is he defeats the criminals. And it's interesting because in a way, he and the hackers are similar personalities, right? They're all interested in technology. They're all interested in coding. They have a lot of the same hobbies. They like a lot of the same movies. You know, they're the same age. And yet one group, the group he's fighting is is greedy and has gone out for going to make money through ransomware. We don't care who we hurt. And Michael has become this kind of, you know, policeman, uh, you know, protecting people all around the world. I mean, he gave us this list of victims who he'd helped, you know, who people who've been attacked by ransomware. And normally they probably wouldn't talk to us. They'd be embarrassed. But because he had rescued them and he didn't charge them any money, they all felt they were in his debt. And so, you know, as you know, from from the book, I mean, we interviewed people who he'd saved from a, a wedding photographer in the Philippines to a a poor inner city London school for immigrant children to a designer of some of the world's fastest and most expensive cars in Sweden. I mean, all around the world, this guy has an impact. You're listening to Daniel Golden. He's the author, along with Renee Dudley, of The Ransomware Hunting Team, a band of misfits, improbable crusade to save the world from cybercrime. Uh, we don't have time to do a bio on each of his partners uh, in the ransomware hunting team, but maybe you, uh, there's Lawrence, Fabian, Sarah, maybe you can pick at least one of them and just give us a brief profile of, and, and it's international because at least one of them, is it Fabian? Is he in, in London or is it Lawrence? Which Yeah, most of them are are, are overseas. There's a couple yeah. in the U.S., but out of the 12, you know, nine or 10 are, are mostly in Europe. Yeah, Fabian is a fascinating guy too. I mean, 
he uh, he's kind of Michael's mentor, and he's very very skilled technically. He grew up in Germany, uh, dropped out of high school as his father abused him when he was young, became a cybersecurity e- executive, and uh, he makes more money probably than most of the other members of the team, and he helps them out when he can, including Michael. But he's a guy. So he moved to London because he was afraid that some of the hackers who might be connected to the Russian mob might put out a hit on him. So he moved to London. Uh, you know, we don't say where he lives there. And he's he's kind of a recluse. He's a very, you know, it's funny. I think of him as somebody out of mystery fiction, like Nero Wolf, if you remember him, or <laughs> Sherlock Holmes's brother, Mycroft. You know, he's very heavy. He's obese. He's brilliant. He rarely leaves his, his, his house and he kind of, he doesn't solve crimes per se, but he cracks code from his, from his room the same way that Nero Wolf or Mycroft Holmes deduce who the, who the, uh, the killer is, you know, in the safety of their fictional right. home. So he's, he's a fascinating guy and, uh, he's amazing. Sarah White is kind of his young protege of his and she's, she's the, the only woman on the team. And then uh, Lawrence is in the U.S. and he's kind of the founder and organizer. So they each kind of have their role out of these dozen or so people. And when you say they support each other, it's not just about supporting each other for the job of cracking code. It's or getting into these these hacker systems. It's also personal because I think at one point, a, a poor old Michael Gillespie didn't have enough money to keep his internet access going or something. And I think it was Fabian or somebody who stepped in to, to help him out. That's right. Fabian bailed him out there and he's helped out others at certain points. And when they were in the financial crisis, because these guys, because they don't charge for their services, a lot of them are poor. There's one in, in Hungary who's kind of, we only know him by his, his internet handle, which is at malware hunter team. He's very, uh, he's a superstitious, unusual guy. We could only interview him by email, but he's had big financial problems, you know, to, and, and Fabian has tried to help him out and recommended ways that he could save money and, and provided some help. And others, he's found jobs for a lot of them when they're, you know, in the cybersecurity realm, often with his own company, yeah. just to, uh, just to keep the, the team going so they can perform their, their mission. This isn't the safest job in the world either. I think one of them actually had to move for fear that one of the hackers that they were after would now turn on them. Was that Fabian? Yeah, that was Fabian. That's right. Yeah. It's not it's not that safe. I mean, the the hackers they have a strange relationship with the hackers because they have a lot in common. There's a lot of banter back and forth. And the hackers the hackers know that Fabian or Michael cracked their code, you know, and so so they will kind of taunt each other and so on. But at the same time, it's not really fun in games because, uh, you know, a lot of them use aliases because they don't want these ransomware gangs would like nothing better than to destroy the hunting team. So they they do have to be very careful. And a lot of the gangs these days are associated to some degree with governments, you know, like a lot of the hackers are based in Russia and they have ties to the Putin regime. Others are in Iran. And so, uh, you know, you, it's not exactly easy going to sleep at night knowing that these kind of people uh, have reason to hate you. So, Dan, one would assume the job of breaking up these ransomware schemes would be the job of governments. Uh, what happened there? Obviously, from your from your book, I learned that the FBI and others were a bit late to the dance. 
That's absolutely right. Um, this has not been something that's been the, the U.S. government's forte, you know, uh, cracking ransomware and catching the hackers. And it's for some reasons that are not their fault and some reasons that are. Uh, you know, among the ones that aren't their fault is most of the actual criminals are not in countries that we have extradition treaties with. Even if you indict a hacker in Russia, like there's a guy named Maxim Yakubitz who had a ransomware group called Evil Corp. And, you know, he was indicted in the U.S., he didn't care. He, he drives around Moscow with a, in a Lamborghini with a license plate that says thief on it. I mean, he could care less if the U.S. indicts him. So we can't do anything about that. But in addition, the FBI's forte has not been combating cybercrime in general. I mean, you know, it, it's an organization that started early on focusing on organized crime and drugs. And then after 9-11 terrorism, cyber has never quite gotten its due. It, it doesn't have enough really skilled cyber agents. It's kind of got this cultural attitude that any agent can do anything. So you could take somebody from a, a drug bust and, and and put them on a ransomware case. And it doesn't work that way. You need technically skilled people like the, like the hunting team. And then a lot of very good cyber people don't really want to, you know, they, they can't meet the FBI standards for things like physical fitness and willingness to shoot a gun and all that. And, and unlike some other international police organizations like the Dutch National Police, they don't waive these requirements for somebody with great technical skills. Now, they do have some cyber people who are not agents, but they're kind of looked down on to some extent. And again, there's not enough of them. So so in general, with cybercrime, the FBI does not do very well. And then with ransomware in particular, as I mentioned, up till a few years ago, it was sort of a tax on individuals for a few hundred dollars. And so the FBI dismissed it. Oh, it's, oh, it's an ankle biter crime. We wouldn't be interested. And this ramping of it up to these major attacks for, for millions and tens of millions of dollars caught the Bureau off guard and unprepared. And, and, and only now are they scrambling to try and catch up. Well, when I look at uh, what happened to Michael down in Springfield, Illinois, I, I realized that I guess the FBI got one thing right. Uh, they decided to listen to Michael Gillespie. I wanted you to tell our listeners what uh, what happened. He, he gets a phone call uh an invitation to show up at the springfield fbi office and <laughs> that's right they invited him to show up at the springfield fbi office ostensibly for a tour and then <laughs> uh as they're taking him around all of a sudden they take him into this room with a large number of people completely crowded everybody's clapping and uh all of a sudden he realizes oh this is for me and so the the fbi gave him uh an award for being a you know one of the great contributors to uh american law enforcement and uh it was because of his website he started id ransomware which kind of automates ransomware cracking so that if you've been hit by a strain of ransomware and you upload the the files that have been affected this can automatically figure out what kind of ransomware has hit you and whether it can be, whether it's breakable or not. And if it is crackable, it will, you know, it sends you the key so that you don't have to pay. So by this way, Michael's able to help, you know, thousands of people a week. And, uh, so, so it was in token of that. And then he, he has been an FBI informant on various occasions. Um, uh, and so he's been helpful in that way on some of their major cases. So they had ample reason to be grateful. And, you know, he eventually, he flew to D.C. and they they gave him an award with a lot of pomp and ceremony, and he was he was delighted. It's just an amazing part of your story. So let's talk about the traditional recruitment method. You mentioned it, and and I think it was the Dutch police that have a very different approach to finding the right kind of people to come into the FBI and 
and attack these this ransomware characters. Um, but I, I'd, I'd like you to talk about the underemployment of people on the autism spectrum and how that relates here to the work of the ransomware hunting team. Absolutely, yeah. Several of the people on the on the hunting team would be considered to be somewhere on the on the spectrum, in, including Michael Gillespie, and um, they, uh, you know, that's not uncommon for people on the spectrum to have exceptional uh, gifts in in mathematical analysis and an ability to concentrate and analyze. And so, some the Dutch National Police, for example, they take advantage of this so that they recruit people with uh, autism and they provide an environment where they can succeed, you know, whether it's dimming the lights to make them more comfortable, whatever you need to do to, to get the maximum productivity. And, uh, but the, you know, that, that's not something the FBI would do. I mean, they have their standards and they, they stick to them. And, and it is that the, the Dutch have various other, uh, innovative recruitment methods. For example, they run a capture the flag competition, which what that is, is a kind of, uh, technical test where you're, you know, they see what your proficiency is by seeing how far you can get towards solving a, a problem in, in, uh, digital analysis or cryptography. And anyone's free to take it. And if you, uh, you know, if you win the capture the flag competition, if you solve the problem, they're going to interview you and they might hire you. So it's a way of identifying the technical talent throughout the Netherlands. And we don't have anything. I mean, private industry does it all the time, but. We don't have anything comparable that the, our government does, and, and that's a shame. It would be a good idea to do. You're listening to Daniel Golden. He is the author of The Ransomware Hunting Team, along with Renee Dudley. And the subtitle of that book is A Band of Misfits, Improbable Crusade to Save the World from Cybercrime. So this really gets complicated uh, when some other firms decide to get into the business that the ransomware hunting team is in. But uh, I think your co-author, Renee Dudley, called it the trade secret in one of uh, her, her uh, articles for, for ProPublica. Uh, they use a slightly different business model, <laughs> to, Absolutely, to, put, yeah. to put it bluntly. <laughs> I mean, what happened is that as ransomware has gotten bigger and bigger, there's been uh, industry that has sp- sprung up around it. You know, we called it the extortion economy. All these companies that essentially have an interest in keeping ransomware in business – so one of the most flagrantly unethical were what they're called data recovery firms. And what they pretend to do what the hunting team actually does. So let's say you're hit by ransomware. You contact the data recovery firm. It says, we can help you. And they'll tell you, oh, you know, we'll crack the code and we'll give you the key so you don't have to pay the ransom and we'll charge you X amount of money. So people go, great. You know, this way I'm not rewarding criminals and um, um, my uh, system will come back on. But instead, what they do is they secretly pay the ransom, and then that gets them the key, and they give it to the the victim, and then the fee that they charge is the ransom plus a fee. So if the ransom is $100,000, they'll charge $120,000, $150,000, keep the twenty or the fifty, give you the key, and you think that they cracked the code, but no, they didn't. So the victim gets exploited twice, essentially. Exactly, and it, and it also encourages the ransomware guys i suppose i mean if they know they this is going on and i assume they do right oh yeah i I think they do and sometimes they uh, we we have in the book various exchanges they've had with these data recovery firms and some of them they particularly like and they will you know kind of give them a little early nod like wait you know we think we'll be working with you on this one and uh you know i mean it, it raises this question which is 
there's a big moral issue at the heart of all this, which is to pay the ransom or not to pay, right? I mean, paying the ransom is not just a financial transaction. I mean, it has other consequences. It it encourages the criminals to commit more ransomware. It and and maybe raise their price the next time around. I mean, it you know if they're connected to terrorist regimes, it, you could be funding terrorism. So there's a lot of reasons not to pay the ransom, which is another reason why the hunting team is so important. But sometimes you don't have an alternative. Like the FBI says, don't pay the ransom. But if the code can't be cracked, you know what else are you going to do? Because if you can't pay the ransom, it might take weeks or months to recover your systems. And let's say you're a hospital and and you know, you need to treat your patients right away. You know, you've got critically ill patients. What are you going to do when they eliminate your your systems of, of diagnosis and your files and, and your electronic records? Or you're a, a major business. You know, you can't afford to tell your customers you got everybody's got to wait three months while we recover our files. So, so sometimes the uh, the attackers are in a very advantageous position, and so you've got this moral quandary whether to pay or not. And some of these industry that sprung up essentially is encouraging paying the attackers like these data recovery firms. Similarly, cyber insurance companies, our insurance companies that provided cyber coverage, they often would encourage victims of ransomware to pay the ransom because it's a more definite, predictable payment than we don't know how long you're going to be down. We're responsible for paying for the recovery. We don't know what the bill will be. That has gotten less as the, as the ransom demands have gotten so huge that the insurance companies can't afford to pay the demands either. But but again, it's it it's a industry that's exploiting a crime that is not just purely a financial crime. It has it has moral and and ethical implications. And tell us how the lawyers get involved in this with a new cause of action. Oh yes, yeah. so so there have been you're right, the lawyers that there's been a uh, a spread of uh class action lawsuits filed by the lawyers and Instead of going after the hackers who are, you know, out of reach in, in Russia or Iran, they often go after the victim, say, say the hospital and blame the hospital for allowing its, um, allowing its systems to be penetrated by the ransomware. And so, you know, maybe in one sense that might prod them to, to improve their cybersecurity. But in another case, again, you're, you, it's, it's double jeopardy for the victim. I grew frustrated with earlier in your book with Michael's unwillingness to charge for for his services. It just drove me crazy when I'm reading about how poor the guy was and and how he struggled financially. But then by the time I got to the end of your book, I did find that at least there was a tool that I believe the ransomware hunting team created where they decided to charge for it. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, they have an agreement. If you're going to be a member of the ransomware hunting team, you cannot charge a victim for your services. We don't want to make the victim pay. They've already been hit by ransomware. And what happened with Michael is that he, after actually our, our profile of him appeared in ProPublica, he got a better job with a place called Coveware. And there he, he continues to help victims who are hit by ransomware, uh, you know, recover their files without paying. But in cases where they are paying, the hunting team has found another role, which is, let's say you're a business and you've been hit by ransomware and you pay the half a million or million dollars or whatever the ransom is, and the key comes, but it's messy, it's full of bugs, it doesn't really recover your files for you. The hunting team can 
clean those keys and make it so at least you get your files back and come up with kind of automated standard tools to make sure that if you're hit by a certain ransomware and you get the key, the key works. And so that's something that they will charge for if the victim has the resources to pay. They're not going to charge some in poor individuals paid by ransomware. But if it's a business that's paying the ransom because they can't crack the code and with the service they provide is to clean up the key, then that's something that they sometimes do charge for. I have time for one more question and I'm going to, I'm going to do it this way, Dan. Um, here at Boise State Public Radio, we're under the aegis of Idaho State Government. And just recently, I took a training module where I had to answer some really tough questions about uh, what kind of emails I should open up, which ones I should throw away without opening them up. Uh, it was all attempt to get me as an employee cognizant of the fact that I could be the guy that lets these ransomware dudes into, in this case, Idaho State Government. And I want to have you close on the Klamath Falls, Oregon case, uh, just because what happened really seems to be the work of an employee who just meant well, but uh, it didn't go well. That's right. I mean, we, we've all gotten these emails that seem so appealing and, you know, can you open this up? It's, you know, you're going to get paid a bonus or, you know, and they, they masquerade as they're from your employer or something. It's very hard not to open them up. I think we all know we're accustomed to opening emails, particularly ones that seem like they come from somebody we know or, uh, you know, that promise us something nice. And that's what happened at the hospital there in, in rural Oregon. You know, an, an employee opened up one of these emails and, you know, the way ransomware works is they come in like any hack and then the ransomware comes in and it, and it, uh, encrypts the files and so this was this had devastating consequences for this rural hospital you know it was it's it's diagnostic equipment was down for a long time um it couldn't treat a lot of its uh most critically ill patients and i interviewed this couple where the husband had a, had a brain tumor and you know he was supposed to get radiation and chemotherapy at the hospital but because they'd been hit by ransomware the hospital couldn't do it and they had to transfer his treatment to another hospital that was 140 miles away round trip over the mountains through snow and ice uh in oregon and uh his wife had to drive him there and back every day it, it made what was already an ordeal even more of an ordeal and you know that's the kind of thing that can happen just by accidentally clicking on an email that seems perfectly benign and and uh and the problem is you know i mean i i describe in the book how that particular employee clicked on it but you know if you're if you're a big organization with thousands of employees it's very hard to make sure every single one of them does not click on any innocent seeming appealing email that's actually coming from a hacker and the the other problem is that that once they get in now not only are they holding you up for money but they're also stealing the personal records and information that's in there you know the employee records or if it's a school or a university student records and then if you don't pay the ransom, they post that on their uh, dark website. So it's a, uh, you know, it's it's an in, in, uh, invasion of privacy as well as a demand for money. But yes, I mean, ideally, institutions should have great cybersecurity and two-factor authentication and everything. But it's very hard in practice to keep every hack from, you know, a determined right. hacker out right. of your system. Well, you and Renee Dudley have done a magnificent job, not only of covering the cybersecurity part of this story. But I think what makes this book so important for people to read is to know that 
in these times when we get so doggone frustrated uh, trying to find the good around us, here's a group of good and decent people who made a difference in so many lives, careers, businesses, schools, healthcare organizations. And we'll leave it to our listeners to get out and get the book. There's a lot we haven't covered here. Again, it's called The Ransomware Hunting Team, A Band of Misfits, Improbable Crusade to Save the World from Cybercrime. Dan Golden, thank you so much for joining us today at Reader's Corner. Thanks so much for having me, Bob. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. Reader's Corner.